Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Richard Thomas tells us about the history of tea and its impact on the global politics of the last 200 years. There are some light-hearted bits, but it's mostly a rather serious discussion about the sort of history, politics, geopolitics of tea. And the cup that cheers is from a poem by Cooper, which I will read a little bit later. And I think tea is one of those things that surrounds us. Everybody drinks tea. Everybody knows somebody that likes tea or likes different sorts of tea. But it is true that there are still kids in London that think that milk comes from bottles. And there are people, I'm sure, even in Farnham, that think that tea comes from packets that you buy in Sainsbury's and Waitrose. But it is a lot more complicated than that. The Chinese emperor in 2737 BC, the precision makes it extremely unlikely this was the date, who was apparently sitting under a bush and the breeze blew some leaves into a drink and he liked it. And so therefore he declared tea had been invented and that tea was henceforth a rather posh drink that emperors and such like were allowed to drink. And that gave it its reputation as an important drink. But it is highly unlikely that it was started then. But it was also highly likely that it was chewed or cooked. You know, they chew cut in Somalia and coca in the Andes, the same sort of thing. They would have used it as a stimulus for whatever reason, if it was available in China and northern India. The tree grows on is the camellia, and the camellia sinensis is the official name given to this tree, and the Indian tea is camellia sinensis variation. It's basically it's a variant of the same bush. Sri Lanka tea, black tea, India tea, Kenya tea is all the black tea, whereas green tea is the Chinese one. The bushes, if unpruned, untrimmed, will grow to about 50 feet and they need a lot of rain and they like high altitudes because it grows slower and this gives it its flavour. The bushes themselves need five years to mature and when they're picked by the ladies you've all seen in the adverts, they pick two leaves in a bud, which is basically the fresh growth and that is where the best tea comes from which is why you can't use mechanical harvesters. You can, but the tea is not such good quality. The two main types of our China tea and India tea, they're variants of the same thing. The green tea is slightly fermented. The Indian tea is much more fermented and it's torn up and it's allowed to oxidize. And that is when we think of tea, I think most of us think of black tea, and it is the most popular everywhere except possibly China. Another sort of subtype of tea is oolong, which is semi-oxidized, slightly more mature leaves, and therefore a much more bitter taste, really. And it's the most popular tea in 
Taiwan and is rather an upmarket tea in the West. And there's a thing called brick tea, which takes all the rubbish and anything from the bush, mashes it up into cakes with butter, salt, flavorings, and they eat it. I have been to Nepal, the highlands, you stop in these weird places in the middle of nowhere and have some tea and you can get India tea, which is more expensive, and then you can get local tea and the local tea is brick tea. It will certainly give you a kick of caffeine, but it's not particularly nice. But if you're a porter carrying those loads, pretty solid tea full of caffeine and other things would be actually preferable. So it still exists, but really a small market. How did tea get to the UK? Well, the first person to write about it, as far as we can tell, was the famous Samuel Pepys, the diarist. And he wrote in 1660, very early on, and afterwards, after what he'd just been doing, I did send for a cup of tea, a China drink, of which I had never drank before. I don't think much of his grammar, but he was one of the first people to drink tea. And it would have been China tea in those days. And the new tax was put on tea, and the tax was twice what it was on coffee, and therefore it was an expensive drink, drunk really only by the well-to-do and the elite. It was popularized by Catherine de Braganza as part of her dowry when she married Charles II in 1662. And it was boxes of tea came from India because that was Goa and other places, Portuguese colonies. She was a very popular queen. She introduced tea to the wealthy elite and it quickly became the drink. Do you want a whiskey and soda? Do you want a gin and tonic? Do you want a cup of... No, no, I'd have some tea, please. It was very much the drink. And it very rapidly became the drink to be seen drinking. Amazingly, the flood of tea really wasn't a flood to start with. In 1664, £100 in weight were imported. That's really not very much. But it rapidly took off. 1700 over 100000 pounds of tea were imported. So from the very, very small beginnings, it rapidly expanded. And at that same time, by 1700, 10,000 tons of sugar were imported to sweeten it up. And sugar, of course, depended on plantations in the West Indies, which depended, of course, on slaves. So there's even a link between the tea trade and slavery. There was naturally, because all governments do, there's a tax which led to high levels of smuggling, battles with the excise. You imagine battling over gold and silver and even brandy and cigarettes, but battling over boxes of tea, it's unusual, but it did happen because the rate of tax was 119%. Why 119? Nobody quite knows. This was cut to 12.5% in 1785. So it was for a long time was highly taxed, and then it was lowered in 1785. As a result of that, of course, the smuggling stopped, it wasn't worth it. And the revenue from the tax actually went up because people were willing to pay it rather than spending all their energies trying to avoid it. By 1800, 23 million pounds were imported into the UK. So if you draw a graph for tea consumption, it just shoots up. And Twinings, one of the first companies, there was an East India merchant, Thomas Twining, one of the first companies to join the tea trade in the Strand. So the tea trade is a very long-standing trade indeed. 
It was given a royal warrant in 1711, and it's now owned by Associated British Foods and still is a niche provider. The health impacts of tea, we all like to believe that what we're drinking is good for us, and the tea's PR has been brilliant over the years. It was initially sold as a medicine which clears obstructions, is good for colds, helps headaches, and strengthens the memory. It does, I think, definitely, as it were, scientifically speaking, rather than PR speaking, it does contain antioxidants, it does contain caffeine, vitamins, and it reportedly has 700 chemicals. It allegedly slows cognitive decline. It helps blood pressure and possibly some cancers. This is moving into the hope rather than scientific area. It also is very good at absorbing flavors such as bergamot, which of course is Earl Grey. But that means it absorbs other environmental pollutants and some tea in some parts would have been tested with a great deal of aluminium in them. So the fact that it absorbs flavors is both good and bad. Okay, it became the drink of choice in the 18th and 19th century. And some people thought it was fantastic. Samuel Johnson, Dictionary Johnson, according to Boswell, who said, no person enjoyed with more relish the infusion of that fragrant leaf. And Johnson said he was a hardened and shameless tea drinker who for 20 years has diluted his meals with only the infusion of this fascinating plant, whose kettle scarcely has time to cool, who with tea amuses the evening, with tea solaces the midnight, and with tea welcomes the morning. Slightly overwritten. Tea helped him with his dictionary, and his learning was, he said, a mere hoard kept by the devil until tea set it in act and use. Rather a nice quote. He was also a fairly serious drinker, as we know. He once drank 36 glasses of port at an Oxford meal. This is the quote from William Cooper. Now stir the fire and close the shutters fast. Let fall the curtains, wheel the sofa round. And while the bubbling and loud hissing urn throws up a steamy column, the cups that cheer, but not inebriate, wait on each. So let us welcome peaceful evening in. Rather a lovely little stanza there. So that is where that expression comes from, the cup that cheers. John Wesley loved tea, but he was a Methodist, and the Methodists tend to be a bit self-denying. So after 27 years, he gave up tea because he thought it was harmful to health, wasteful and sinful. Well, 27 years of harming his health and being sinful, obviously it was time as a good Methodist that he stopped doing it. And he reckoned it saved him 50 pounds a year, which was the average working man's annual wage. So he saved what lot of money. That is the equivalent, if, if the average wage is what, 25,000 pounds, sort of. So it's the equivalent today of saving 25,000 pounds, serious money. He resumed after 14 years on doctor's orders and had a large Wedwood teapot made for him. So he thought it was popular. But of course, one person who did not like tea, William Cobbett, now, I'm undoubtedly bored you rigid with talking about Cobbett and his hatred of tea, so I'll contain myself and just remind you that he made the very real and genuine point that it was not just sheer prejudice on his part, but his points were that it was expensive for poor families. The tea tackle, the kettles, the pots, blah, 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 cost a lot of money. It was, unlike beer, not nutritious and could not, like beer, 
be given to the local pig to fatten him up for the winter. It was of no use at all to, to do that. And he made the point, if you fed the pigs the slops from beer, he'd be fattened jolly at Christmas in order to kill him. And if you fed him tea, he'd be dead within a week. And he was quite right. He also said, and this is a much more important geopolitical point, they were produced in conditions of near slavery in India, i.e. the tea, and actual slavery in the West Indies, i.e. sugar. So he was not wrong. He was the usual vehement over-the-top language, but his point was a reasonably valid one. Perhaps his most famous phrase. It's a destroyer of health, an enfeebler of the frame, an engenderer of effeminacy and laziness, a debaucher of youth, and a maker of misery and old age. He also made a point that learning all the sort of the tea habits and how to produce tea and how to sort of the tea ceremonies was excellent training for the brothel. So I think you can take it that Cobbett didn't like tea, but for reasons that are not completely over the top and mad, for reasons that make sense given the price of it and the almost addiction to it when he was around. Now, it would not be true to say the Americans didn't like tea. What they didn't like is paying taxes on tea. But the fact is, coffee was then and still is the favoured American drink. 1773, you see, quite early in the story, when it was becoming popular and it was a taxable commodity. And the British decided to tax tea because they had just been paying for the protection of America against the French in Canada and so on. And they thought, well, the locals should pay for it. But as you know, the phrase, no taxation without representation, encouraged the Americans to become rebellious and revolutionary. And uh, is always presented as a trigger to the American War of Independence. The trigger was the paying taxation. And it was not that it was unfair and wicked and cruel of the British. It was a perfectly reasonable thing to do. But any excuse will do if you want to have a declaration of independence. It's made popular by the Dutch, who brought it from the Indies. A lot of it was smuggled because the tax was something they didn't want to pay. There was already a tax, then they raised the tax under the Tea Act of 1773, included an extra three pounds per pound, but they gave the East India Company the right to import Tea. It was a monopoly given to the East India Company. That is what annoyed the American ship owners. As we all know from the stories, a bunch of Indians, they, went, they were locals dressed as Indians, threw the tea into the harbour, criticised the British. It helped to lead to the American War of Independence. So having decided that tea was pretty popular, how did it get from India and China originally? to Europe, to America? Well, the answer is in ships, obviously, and many of them were the famous tea clippers. And uh, whatever people like Cobbett or even Wesley thought about tea, it became amazingly popular, amazingly quickly, and was by 1800, the drink, and 1820s, 30s, after the war of, against Napoleon, trade revived, and the ships got faster. And in the 1830s, the American-designed ships, longer, sleeker, narrower, appeared and overtook the slow, wide, but safe ships called East Indiamen. The East Indiamen were ships, not men. 
and they were being overtaken by, I mean, literally as well as metaphorically, by the American ships, the Baltimore Clippers. In 1850, the Oriental, a US clipper, went from Hong Kong to London in 97 days. Now that is an amazing journey on a sailing ship. And of course, they also used to ship opium into China from India because as you will know, the opium wars were caused by the British because they wanted to stop paying for this tea with silver and other useful currencies and decided to pay for it with opium. So the opium wars, I'm sure when I did it at school, it was described as a great British victory. It was an imposition of a pretty dreadful thing to make sure, no, we're not going to give you silver, give you opium instead. Not a good plan. And the Chinese still today are very, very aware of that fact. But the speed of delivery, of course, for all sorts of races, attracted public attention, was very popular, and gambling was done on which ship was going to get there first, etc. So from 1860 to 1871, there were official clipper races. And 1849 was also a key date. The British market was open to American ships, and they started forging ahead. And so the British borrowed some design ideas from the American ships, the Baltimore Clippers, and produced ships of their own. And they were the famous Clippers. So the tea was collected all over China and brought to places like Canton, which was a tea broking center. Carried overland, sold, loaded onto the Clippers, who then raced back to London as fast as they could. One captain was said never to go to bed, but to catnap on the poop deck during the three month voyage. On arrival, the tea was checked, tasted, mixed, and sold to merchants, traders, and spread across the country from the auction rooms at Mincing Lane, which was the home of the tea auctions for 136 years until 1971. As the supply increased, demand also increased, but the price dropped, so it became even more popular. And there was a premium, obviously, for the first of these ships to arrive with the new year's tea, Beaujolais Nouveau, I suppose, so that they could get the best in the market. The speed, therefore, of the clippers mattered. And in 1866, there was a famous clipper race. The trip from London to China, load up and come back, was a two-year journey. So if you were signed on to one of these ships, you had two pretty rough years ahead of you. And the racing was exciting, but if you were a crew member, it would not have been exciting at all. It would have been completely exhausting and dangerous. People would fall off the ships at 15 knots and they would never be seen again as they were changing the sails in forced eight gales. So 1866 Clipper Race, I've got a sort of summary of the, of the story. Nine ships left Fujian province on the Min River at the same time. In May, they loaded up the aerial with 1.2 million pounds of tea in 391 chests. They went down the river, which is quite dangerous, out to sea, and after a difficult navigation through the South China Sea, which is quite complicated navigationally, hit the Indian Ocean southerlies and raced towards Mauritius. One ship made 328 miles in one day, which is about 15, 16 knots. And if you've been on a cruise ship, that's fairly fast for a cruise ship. So it's extraordinary. They were going as fast as a ship with big engines. They put up every bit of sail they could, 30 to 40,000 square feet of sail. 
of canvas on each ship. The Cape of Good Hope was rounded, this was before Suez, remember, 47 days out from Canton. First by the Fiery Cross, one of the ships, then Taiping, another of the ships. And Taiping took a slightly different route around the Cape. I think what it did was went further out into the Atlantic and then back up to the Azores, which some of them sort of got closer to the coast, which may have been shorter, but a bit slower. Anyway, Taiping made up three days and got ahead by Cape Verde. Four ships crossed the Azores within 24 hours. Ariel and Taiping raced side by side up the English Channel at 14 knots. Extraordinary. And Ariel was greeted by the pilot as the first ship. However, Taiping received a better Thames pilot and berthed at the East India Dock, which was the end of it, 20 minutes before Ariel. 20 minutes difference after 97 days. I think it's an extraordinary story. It's exciting and romantic, but by God, it would have been rough on those ships. Now, these, of course, were a publicity stunt for the companies and opportunities for gambling. They generated publicity and increased the market for tea. The last race in 1871 was ironically just after the Cutty Sark had been launched. The time taken, 99 days or thereabouts, was never really improved upon. Hong Kong was a bit closer, so that was, well, it was 97 days, but 99 days was the, an amazing time for that race. But they were magnificent events, but they were then, of course, quickly overtaken by a spot of history. The Cutty Sark was involved in the last couple of races. She could take over a million pounds of tea, a pound's weight, LB, and did one race with a broken rudder, but still made it in 122 days. Now, as you know, the Cutty Sark is now at Greenwich. She ended her days as a wool-carrying ship from Australia. Not very romantic. She made one journey from Australia in 67 days and beat a steamship in the process. So in terms of design, romance, the Sea Clippers were wonderful, amazing ships. And if you look around Cutty Sharp, you think of the crew living in that, in high seas, putting on sail, taking off sail, not an easy life. So just as it got terribly exciting and terribly popular and lots of gambling and lots of excitement, along came the Suez Canal. The Suez Canal was constructed, as you know, in the 1860s, opened in 1869. And the first convoy, which is quite interesting really, was steamships. But the initial traverse through the Suez Canal obviously quickly took over the trade and at the same time steamships were now growing in popularity and importance. The Suez Canal does not lend itself to passage by sailing ships, but it does lend itself to passage by ships with engines. So ironclad steamships very quickly took over. They were more reliable, they were safer, they were less dangerous, and they were quicker. But they certainly had no magic at all. Now, the canal is fascinating. Early on, it was really quite small and narrow, and then it's been extended and widened since, and the latest being in 2009. And as we know, the Suez Canal is extraordinarily important because if it gets blocked, the impact on world trade is really quite significant. Going through the Suez Canal cuts the journey by 10 days for modern, fast steamships. So there more for sailing ships. So the, the canal revolutionized trade from India, China to Europe and made it such a big difference. It's several thousand miles 
longer around the Cape and more dangerous seas as well. So Suez Canal revolutionized trading and shipping, as I have said, and killed off ships like the Cutty Sark. So here we are back in the UK, tea had arrived. How was it consumed? Well, some of us are old enough to remember Lyons tea shops. And they were places where ladies who lunch could go and have a cup of tea without needing a chaperone, without being expected of doing something rather naughty and dashing off with their boyfriends. It was where middle-class ladies met and had tea and cakes in the Lion's Corner House, the Lion's Tea Shops. And it wasn't just in private houses. It wasn't in coffee shops where sort of men only. So from 1800 to 1900, the price of tea was dropping rapidly. Taxes were lower, but they produced more. Other sources of supply from other countries, we'll come on to that, and speedier delivery, steamships. And over the century, the price of tea dropped from something like, that's from 1800 to 1900, something like 70 pence per pound, LB, pound weight, to eight pence per pound. So sharp drop in price, sharp increase in consumption. No longer a luxury drink, as with Cobbett and others, it became a necessity, perhaps almost like tobacco. You just had to have some. So the price dropped, demand increased between 1800 and 1900. The imports of tea increased from about 23 million pounds to 300 million pounds weight. And those were people who would go and drink it. The Lions Corner Houses, they started in the 1890s. And the waitresses were called nippies. They owned a very smart hotel, Regent's Palace Hotel, cakes and ice cream. And they were sold to allied breweries only as late as 1978. But they stopped doing this in the 1970s. So I remember going into them and they were a nice place for a cup of tea and a piece of cake. Who was their most famous employee? Lyons. Margaret Thatcher. She was hired as a research scientist to prolong the life of ice cream, which was, sounds quite reasonable. But since the ice cream was made of, not of milk, but of vegetable oil, it doesn't seem to me that difficult a task. Anyway, she was their arguably most famous employee. Now, I'm talking about tea in the UK, obviously, but tea was popular everywhere. It was popular around the world, and every country has its tea ceremony, if you like. The other reason why the Lions Tea Houses failed, or ran out of business, really, was that nippies, of course, were young ladies who had to be paid a decent wage, and the trade unions came along and demanded the wages were increased. But this was part of the story. The bigger part of the story was that cafeteria-style eating came along. In other words, you queued up and got your food and drink from the counter and rather than waiting for a nippy to come and ask you what you wanted and serving you there. So the nippies quickly became redundant. Now the next chapter is basically looking at tea consumption and production around the world. So moving away from the UK to some other part of the world. Who are the world's biggest consumers of tea? Well, the UK was number one for many years, over about six pounds per person per annum, which is a lot of tea per person per annum. Now it's dropped a bit. Ireland was second, 
just below 2.2. Turkey, which was third, has now become the biggest consumer, 3.2 kg per person. So it's extraordinary in the fact that the British have always been pretty near the top of the tea consumption, even though tea, of course, is nothing, no necessary connection with the UK except Catherine de Braganza and Samuel Pepys and so on. It's slightly odd that that became our drink of choice. The reason why Turkey has become number one, the tea ceremonies, and if you've been to Turkey, you know tea is drunk everywhere, Muslim countries, so it's a substitute for alcohol, etc. And other Muslim countries are in the kind of top 10 consumption list. But also they grow quite a lot of tea in Turkey. They're number six or seven in the world's production. And as the Turkish economy collapses and their currency collapses, of course, their locally homegrown tea remains reasonably accessible to people in Turkey. And lots of British influence, I mean, Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, etc., become places high on the list of consumers. Not forgetting India and China, where it's produced and consumed as well, but it's not so much as traded there, but they are, India and China would be the two biggest drinkers of tea, but not necessarily per person. That's the different point. Approximately 2010, UK, Turkey, Ireland, Iran, Russia, Morocco, Egypt, etc. 2016-17, Turkey on top, Ireland, UK, Iran, Russia. So it's the same difference, except that UK and Turkey have changed places. And that's a lot of tea to be consumed. I think the UK is the only one to drop. The others have gone up if only a little bit. Production of tea, the much bigger question really is not where it was consumed, but where it's produced. The main ones are India and China, which is quite correct. The more accurate summary of where tea is produced today. Obviously, South India as well as North India, Thailand, Korea, Indonesia certainly, but a whole bunch of them in Africa. Main one by far being Kenya, but you've got Tanzania, Uganda, Burundi, etc., etc., and one in Argentina, in Latin America. So tea is now produced in many other places. But except for China, virtually all of the expansion is caused by the colonial governments, i.e. Britain mainly, stealing China tea and, and then making sure it was grown properly in India, and certainly moving it across to Kenya in the 1920s and 30s, not the 1820s and 30s, the 1920s and 30s. So those are the main producers of tea. China, India, Kenya, Sri Lanka, those are the top four. Vietnam, Turkey, Iran, etc. Green tea, especially in China. Now, finding the figures, when you do these sorts of talks, you think, oh, go to Wikipedia or whatever, or the Tea Council or whatever. The figures for China of production range from about two to about three million tons. In other words, that's a pretty big deviation. Partly because there are good years and bad years. Partly, I am fairly convinced, is that the Chinese have production targets like the good old Stalinist factory owners. And if they're told you must double your tea production by five years' time, they duly say they have, regardless of whether they really have. I mean, I think they do grow more. But as the economy flourishes, then they will consume more, therefore they will grow more. But the fluctuations and the range of possible figures is too big to be just climate and gradually increase production. India, Ceylon, Kenya, the figures are much more accurate. So let's look at China. Recorded, as I said, since several centuries BC, 
Interestingly, the word in Cantonese is cha, which is very close to chai, which is Indian, very close to cha, which is the Cockney British soldier's version of it, having served in India. Swahili, chai, etc. In Hokkien, it is more simply te. So we use the Chinese words, essentially. Brought to Europe, as I said, by the Portuguese, Catherine de Braganza. In China, production was affected by the 19th century internal wars and by the Opium Wars, uh, which the Brits imposed on China. 20th century, the Chinese production tailed off under Mao and the chaos caused by the Cultural Revolution. Last 20, 30 years, the graph has been going pretty steadily up. Much increased production, especially of green tea, and about one third of their overall production is exported. As I said, the rapid rise in output figures, I think, may be genuine in this have been a rapid rise, but not quite so rapid as some of their figures suggest. And also, when you're working out how much is produced, you get some figures in pounds, some in kilos, some in tons, some in metric tons, and some in American tons. And if, as a rule of thumb, 2,000 pounds, which most of us are familiar with, is one ton, T-O-N, and quite close to one T-O-N-N-E. So these are approximate figures. But all of these things show an extraordinary increase in production, in trade, in consumption. In China, a lot of smallholder production, poor quality, civil wars and things caused actually the production and the consumption and the exports to drop. So the 18th century and the middle, 19th century and the middle of the 20th century were not good times for China tea. They were not reliable suppliers. And of course, this made way for Indian tea to prosper. Now, when we think of Indian tea, I suspect we think of Assam and Darjeeling because that's what it says on the packets. They also grow in the hills. So remember, I said it needs to be wet, high up, and sunny, hot, hot, wet, and high altitude. The Chinese production became volatile and became less reliable. The encouragement for India started with tea bushes being discovered in the north as variant of camellia in Assam. So really, next to China, really, up in the hills. Slightly different from the Chinese version. Cuttings were taken by the East India Company and nurtured in their laboratories and research centers. And the agronomists in the hill stations planted them and discovered they could produce very respectable tea in Assam first and then Darjeeling in the 1830s, only in the 1830s. In 1838, 12 chests were sent by the East India Company to London. This was before the East India Company gave up power to the British government. The tea was obviously very successful, very popular, new supply, better taste, interesting taste. So by 1874, from 12 chests, it went up to 4 million pounds, pounds weight of tea. So again, a sharp increase in production of tea. 1886, gone from 4 million pounds to 86 million pounds. That's in a decade. This was more than was being exported from China. And India has remained a major exporter ever since. It's not all been plain sailing. The 20th century saw extremely variable fortunes in Indian tea, poor management, leading to a drop in quality and output uh, as well, lack of replanting, 
not dealing with disease properly. There are diseases of tea. You just uproot everything and sterilize the soil. They didn't bother with that. Old equipment. And this century, the last 20, 30 years, things have been stabilized. The tea has revived as a major export. But we must not ignore the fact that the conditions of tea workers, mostly women, has remained something of a problem. Many, perhaps one million, are paid no more than a pound a day, perhaps a little bit more, but and very, very low figures. And being a mature market with competitors means they have to compete hard for their market share. So they can't say, oh, yes, you poor lady, you're not paid enough, I'll double your salary. They can't do that. And so they're not always as effective at fighting for market share and good quality as Salon and Kenya, who are better at quality control, better at marketing, and better at ensuring the next generation of bushes are of high quality. Sir Thomas Lipton became the name associated with Salon tea. Now, the country is Sri Lanka. It's still Salon tea, so I'll probably keep referring to it as Salon. And I think somebody is giving a talk. I'm pretty sure somebody is giving a talk on him in a later session, so I won't focus on his story, though he's a fascinating man with a fascinating story. But in Salon, the origins were very unpromising because the tea industry started because the coffee industry failed. And they were also trying to grow chinchona, which is the quinine, basically, anti-malarial treatment. That failed as well. But James Taylor, a Scottish planter, visited India to learn about tea production. And in 1867, again, quite late in our story, planted a few acres. 1875, a small shipment to London, and it grew rapidly. And the tea auctions have been held in Colombo since 1883. By 1927, 10,000 tons, not pounds, were being sold for export. So again, a rapid increase in the marketing and the production of tea in Ceylon. The expansion was substantially funded by Sir Thomas Lipton, who visited the country in 1880, got to know James Taylor, invested in his activities, and gave it the capital it needed to expand. And that's why Lipton's tea, Ceylon teas, are not exactly synonymous, but they are closely linked still. Now, the tea industry also needed labor, because the Sinhalese, who were quite used to a quiet and pleasant life, relaxing, decided they didn't really want to do this extremely hard work on the tea estates. So they shipped in Tamil workers from southern India. And these were transported. This descriptions of how they got to India was pretty depressing. And when they got there, they were given pretty rough accommodation places to live. A lot of them died in transit. A lot of them died in the labor camps in which they were held while they picked the tea. 350,000 Tamils were imported by 1900. Now, if you've been to Ceylon, Sri Lanka, and you know it's a lovely country, etc., you'll also know, therefore, of the Civil War, the Tamils in the north fighting for their rights, really. Now, these are the descendants from these impoverished laborers. So if you're looking for an explanation of why this idyllic country suddenly burst into extremely bloody civil war, you don't need to look any further than the exploitation, which arguably still continues, of these imported laborers. So it, that's you know, the underside of the good news story is the condition of the working people there. 
country became independent in 1948, was then and continues a major exporter, mainly to the UK. UK was the main market, thanks to Lipton, thanks to just good markets and good, good PR, good quality, respectable commodity, well-liked, and therefore people kept buying it. But as often happened in these cases, 1970, the industry was nationalized. And while it is not axiomatically the case in this situation, it was the case that things were ignored. Management was poor, all the things like renewal and fertilizers and new strains and new bushes, new equipment were not done. And so it began to decline. Privatized in 1993, and since then, things have been looking up. In recent years, their exports have exceeded 230,000 tonnes, which was the highest. So it's in relatively good shape, relatively well managed, but not, not, not without its problems. My uncle worked on a tea plantation in Assam as a young engineer just before the war. And I suppose I pretend that's where I got my interest in tea from, but not really. Just thinking about him, he as an engineer, joined the Royal Engineers in the war from Assam, went to Burma. One of the stories he told me when I was a boy, he said, I was a substantive lieutenant, an acting captain, and a temporary colonel. And I could not work out why. I thought it was a very amusing story until I realized gradually it meant that everybody else had been killed. And so he was in some very unpleasant bits of Burma. While he told me the funny stories, he never told me the gruesome details. So having been nationalized and then denationalized, they have restored themselves to a position of number four in the production and marketing of tea, selling of tea overseas. The next story, which is the one I'm going to spend a bit more on, because I lived in Kenya, in the edge of the tea areas, as it were. And so it is also a success story. And it's quite nice to be able to tell a modest success story, a lot of which is owed to the colonial authorities. <gasps> in this modern day and age, to say anything nice about the colonial period is politically incorrect, but there is a success story coming out of tea in Kenya. There were settlers, some of them grew tea, and then Brooke Bond came along. James Finley was both a man and a company, and they expanded the tea estates before independence and indeed after independence. And in 1960s, the Kenya Tea Development Authority came along and established smallholder production. Now, if you really are staying awake, I mentioned smallholder production in China as being one of the reasons why quality was poor and output was variable and old bushes tended to be not uprooted and kept. The Kenya Tea Development Authority focused on smallholder production, but they used the estate factories to process it, and the National Research Centre in Eldoret and other places to make sure they were always trying new things, cloning, all sorts of new techniques, continuously trying to improve the quality of production. So this Kenya Tea Development Authority has been the reason why Kenya is now the number one exporter of tea around the world. Some of the processing factories are owned by Brook Bond, some by other companies, some I think even by the state. And they've got something like 200,000 hectares of tea estates in Kenya, similar to Sri Lanka's, but a higher production than Sri Lanka's, than Ceylon, because it's more effective. 
And the research centre at Edgerton keeps up the standards at Edgerton, which is a technical university. And luckily for Kenya, some exceptions, in general, the politicians keep out of it because they can enjoy the success of this. They can get voted in by saying they're going to do this and this. But generally, the business side has not been overwhelmed by the politicians. And nobody seriously has talked about nationalizing it, which in some of these countries is a bit of a surprise. The highland area of Kenya, which of course, Kenya's on a plateau, so it looks not that flat, but it's sort of level rolling hills at five to 10,000 feet. The flat country at Molo is 9,000 feet. People picking tea, not terribly efficient, it's much more sensible to stick it on the lorry, which they do in some of them, I suppose, these days, and take it there and to weigh it source rather than have to walk down but the women want to keep hold of their loads because that's what they've picked and that is the basis of their payment inside the tea factory where it's wilted and sort of semi-cooked wilted and torn ctc which is cut tear and curl now ctc tea ctc tea is the stuff you buy in sainsbury's and waitrose in packets loose tea it has been sort of cut up, mashed up, really, torn apart, curled and semi-cooked. That oxidizes it and brings out the flavors. And then it's tasted, checked, quality assurance, taken very seriously. You make very strong tea, swill it around your mouth like wine and spit it out. And that gives you an idea. And it's very, it's often quite bitter, but because it's fresh, pure tea and strong. I've had a taste of that stuff, and you spit it out because that's what you want to do. <laughs> I talked about the tea being torn and curled, but a pretty significant amount of it now has been put into tea bags. It was 10% of tea consumed, now much closer to 90%. You can get loose tea in places like Kirichu, you could do, and then posh tea shops, but now it's mostly tea bags. This is possibly, you could argue, the only major innovation in tea consumption for over a century. Can you think of anything else as important as that? It makes life easier for you and me, and it makes the taste of the tea pretty bland usually. But the tea producers are even more delighted because they can now use the rubbish technically called fannings or dust. It is dust, and it's swept off from the floors. That's the stuff that ends up in the tea bags. So the tea producers are delighted that we all drink from tea bags. It gives them an extra, probably 10% of product, and it's the rubbish, which is now consumed by us as we have our expensive tea bags. So from facts and figures, can't go without facts and figures, tea in the UK. Consumption has dropped a bit, as I said, from six pounds approximately to five pounds. Mostly tea bags introduced in the UK in 1935 by Tetley, then Pyramid Bags 1966, which are supposed to be better. It's all marketing. It's a bit of paper or even plastic covering dust through which the tea leaks out. The main four companies in the UK, Lyons, Tetley, the co-op, Brookbond, which make PG tips, and Typhoo. These were 85% of the sales in 1970 
they've gone down since then because there are so many niche providers and they're all owned by multinationals. What's fascinating is one of the multinationals, I think Tetley, which was founded in Yorkshire in 1837, that well-known producer of tea, Yorkshire. But since 2000, somewhat ironically, it's been owned by Tata, an Indian company. I'm not sure they still are, but they were a few years ago. The main popular brands in the UK are Typhoo and PG Tips. How do they get their silly names? Well, Typhoo is named after the Chinese word for a doctor, which is Daifu from 1903, it says here. And PG Tips from Brookbond stands for pre-digestive tea from 1930s. Pre, forget the digestive, PG Tips. So it's silly marketing, but it's really hung around. So this is very successful marketing. There is one British producer of tea, Trugothan House in Cornwall. It's significant in the sense it's the only one. It's not that it's very big. It's Trugothan House. The place has a long history of exotic gardens, including the first camellia imported into the UK that was planted in Trugothan. And the camellia being slightly delicate, not like in British climate, but of course the Cornish climate is fairly acceptable. And in 2001, they began to produce tea and it's now available from places like Harrods and I know that I have seen it but I'm not sure about recently in the Farnham Waitrose which as we all know is up there with Harrods as the shop for the discerning shopper i.e. us so you can get Trigothan and tea I'm not sure I've tasted it I expect it's a bit more bitter than some of the other teas because it won't have had enough sun on it slightly political question. The future of the tea trade? Well, who knows? But consumption is increasing slower than output. Output is increasing thanks to places like Edgerton in Kenya. Yield is better, better fertilizer regimes and cloning. Tea bags enable the rubbish to be used. So there's more being supplied. Undoubtedly, China and India, as the middle classes expand, will consume more. And this is why I can't absolutely say the Chinese figures are invented because they may have a sudden burst of middle-class extra tea consumption. It's always been important, but now maybe it's moving down from the middle class to the, the poorer people who can not want it more, but can afford it more. Things like fair trade may encourage better working conditions, which remain pretty dire. You can't say double the salaries of the workers because that would price you out of the market. Lots of supermarkets supply it, the major shippers are still there. So there are lots of exotic teas, premium teas, teas with spices, Earl Grey, cardamom, cinnamon, cloves, all these flavours, most of which I don't like. But I do, myself, because I lived in South Africa, I do drink rooibos, red bush tea, which again, you can get several varieties of that from Waitrose. But it's not tea, it's a different sort of bush, it's not a camellia. It has antioxidants, but it doesn't have caffeine, which is why people use it but it's kind of like tea. Premium things like Earl Grey and all sorts of other things, they may well rise up to the market, but they may not. They may give way to coffee and other such things. So we don't really know, but it's a mature market. It's, it's not gonna change in any significant way. Mature market in Europe. Are there untapped markets? Well, possibly India and China, possibly South America might grow where it's coffee is the main thing. Unlikely to be another burst of excitement another shooting up of the graph for 
tea. So if you're in the tea business, very nice, but if you're a tea picker, your future is not that amazingly good. What is a perfect cuppa? Now, this was written by George Orwell in 1946, and I saw it, and I made some minuscule changes, like adding Kenyan, because it was before Kenyan tea was heard of. So use India or Ceylon or Kenya tea, China or earthenware pot, and warm the pot. Make the tea strong, put it straight into the pot. Take the teapot to the kettle. And this is one of the things that grandmothers used to say. Take the teapot to the kettle, dear. Water should be boiling. Stir and allow to settle. Use a mug. Use semi-skimmed. I think I changed that from don't use full cream, full fat milk, which is true, absolutely right. Tea before milk, drink without sugar. Can anybody improve on that? I think a very good cup of tea would emerge from that. But it's George Orwell, 1946. Quotes about tea. Proper use is to amuse the idle and relax the studious and dilute the full meals of those who cannot use exercise and will not use abstinence. Samuel Johnson. A man without tea in him is incapable of understanding truth and beauty. Well, okay. Thank God for tea. What would the world do without tea? How did it exist? I'm glad I was not born before tea. Sydney Smith, 1855. Well, again, these are enthusiasts for tea. So I thought of looking actually at the literature on tea and realized that every novel you read, every Agatha Christie, every, every soap on TV, somebody's going to be drinking tea somewhere during the course of the program. So it's soaked into the British society, culture, economy, but everybody in the 19th century possibly ever since, Oscar Wilde, Jane Austen, Thackeray, Agatha Christie, all had pages involving tea. And sometimes this was to pause the action of drama, excitement, and then let's have a cup of tea, dear. Or sometimes, in certainly in things like Jane Austen, seething underneath the surface, this, this ritual of tea, this polite society, seething emotions, barely suppressed, bursting out during the tea ceremony. So tea is rooted in our literature. In fact, somebody, not me, somebody might want to do a little talk on tea in literature. It would be fascinating to see how it's grown. But I thought I would read an extract from P.G. Woodhouse. The Honourable Galahad Threepwood had his view on tea. He wanted a whiskey and soda and was meeting with his niece, who did not want a whiskey and soda. He surveyed the table with a frown of distaste. Tea, he said. Millicent reached for a cup. Cream and sugar, Uncle Galley? He stopped her with a gesture of shocked loathing. You know I never drink tea. Too much respect for my insides. Don't tell me you're ruining your insides with that muck. Sorry, Uncle Galley, I like it. You be careful, Galley, who was fond of his niece and did not like to see her falling into bad habits. Be very careful how you fool about with that stuff. Did I ever tell you about poor old Buffy's struggles back in 93? Some poor misguided person lured old Buffy into one of those temperance lectures, and he called on me the next day. Ashen, poor chap, ashen. Galley, he said, what's the procedure when a fellow wants to buy tea? How would a fellow go about it? Tea, I said, what do you want tea for? To drink, said Buffy. Pull yourself together, dear boy, I said. You're talking wildly. You can't drink tea. Here, have a brandy and soda. No more alcohol for me, said Buffy. Look at what it does to the common earthworm. But you're not a common earthworm, I said. 
putting my finger on the floor in his argument right away. Well, I begged him with tears in my eyes not to do anything rash, but I couldn't move him. He ordered 10 pounds of the muck and was dead within a year. Good heavens, really, said Millicent. Callahan nodded impressively. Dead as a doornail. Got run over by a handsome cab, poor chap. As he was crossing Piccadilly. Thank you very much. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.